This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Christ's Human Knowledge and Our Salvation. This talk is really about uh, the importance of Jesus' own human knowledge for our knowledge of God. So our retreat has been about whether it's possible to know God and how our knowledge of God works. And here on this last uh, conference session, we're really reaching, in a certain sense, the pinnacle of the possibility of human knowledge of God, and that is in the humanity of Jesus. So the humanity of Jesus both is the recipient of the greatest light as a human nature. Now, we need to make some distinctions here, but that's what this talk will be about. Uh, but as man, Jesus has the most full knowledge of God. He's the closest that a human being can be to God because we're talking about a union of a human nature with the divine nature in the person of the word or the, the divine word becoming man, joining a human nature to himself. And so that's true about Jesus himself. And Jesus is the greatest revealer of God. So he reveals God to us in a different way than any other human being can reveal God. Because Jesus doesn't just hear things from God that then he tells us. Jesus is God who comes to reveal himself to us. And he does it in a way adapted to us. That is, he becomes one of us. Not just so that he can hang out, right? But so that he can bring us back to him. So that he can show us the way. And a very important part of that is his knowledge and how he communicates that knowledge to us. Now, this isn't just the communication of data. It's not just information. I think we've seen over the past few days that knowledge for St. Thomas Aquinas is much richer than that. It's not just, you might say, cognitive content. He comes to bring us into communion with God so that we would know God as a friend, as our father. And he puts us in relationship with God. But that means really knowing God, knowing God as a friend, knowing God on a personal level, and therefore having a deep personal relationship with God. That's what Jesus comes to give us. He comes to make us his friends. He comes to make us adopted sons and daughters of his father. And to bring us in a certain way into that relationship that he has with the father. So uh, what I propose to do is to talk uh, about why Aquinas holds what he does about the mind of Jesus. So we're talking about the, the human mind of Jesus. And Aquinas's view was very influential. But in the 20th century, and uh, well, even before the 20th century, it has been by some theologians, uh, very, very controversial. They've not liked the way Aquinas portrays 
the mind of Christ. And they've tried to come up with some other theories. So I'll mention those kind of as we go. Uh, but our main focus is going to be on Aquinas. So let's just start off with some uh, basic distinctions. St. Thomas holds that in addition to the divine knowledge of the eternal word, so this is the, the knowledge of the second person of the Trinity as God. So Jesus has that knowledge insofar as he is the divine word. It's the same mind as the Father and the Holy Spirit. There's one intellect. This is one of those things that, you know, when you begin thinking about the Trinity, it stretches your mind because we're saying there are not three minds. There are not three consciousnesses in God. There's one mind, but there are three persons who are one intellect and one will. Okay, our talk is not about the Trinity, but let's just start with that. Okay, so the divine knowledge of the eternal word, of the second person of the Trinity, this does not pertain to Christ's humanity. This is the Son's knowledge as God. When we move into his human nature, now the Son becomes man. He joins a complete human nature to himself. So that includes a human intellect and a human will. This was a patristic controversy. Actually, there were some in the early ages, the first five centuries, really. Um, It was one of the later patristic controversies over Jesus, questioning whether Jesus had a human mind. And the church uh, determined this is a heresy to say that Jesus does not have a human mind for reasons that we'll we'll get into. And you'll see that that actually is extremely important for uh, how Aquinas understands what's going on in the incarnation, how we're saved. So it's important that Jesus assume a human mind precisely in order to redeem the human mind. So Jesus has a human mind, which means it's different from the divine mind or the divine intellect. Now, there are three types of knowledge, according to Aquinas, in Christ's human mind. From high to low, they are these. Beatific knowledge, that's an immediate vision of the word himself that infinitely transcends all created images and it renders the highest part of Jesus' soul, his human soul, blessed at every moment of his existence. And that's probably the most controversial claim in 20th century theology that medieval theology and patristic theology very typically made, that Jesus has, from the first moment of his existence, this beatifying vision of God in his human mind. Okay, then second level in the human mind of Jesus is infused supernatural knowledge. This is knowledge like prophetic knowledge. So you can imagine how a prophet knows something by the Holy Spirit putting something in the prophet's mind, infused supernaturally. So knowledge is infused supernaturally. Uh, Now this is according to intelligible concepts or what Aquinas would call intelligible species, species, images, concepts, proportion to the human mind. 
So do you see the difference between beatific vision and uh, infused knowledge? Beatific vision is unmediated by any created images. It's just a direct vision of the divine essence. Whereas infused knowledge now does involve a human way of knowing. That is, knowing according to concepts and, and images or um, likenesses in the mind. And then a third category of knowledge in the human soul of Christ is acquired or experiential human knowledge. Now, that's just a fancy label for saying the kinds of things you learn through your everyday life. So just like you and me, Jesus learned things in a certain sense, or he knew, maybe it's better to say he knew things. He knew things through his senses and the operation of his intellect. So uh, it's not necessarily the case with Jesus that he was surprised by what he knew. Like, I was surprised to discover the back garden here at the retreat center. I didn't know it was there. And you explore it and you, you discover new things. The claim is not necessarily that Jesus would be surprised about what he learns, but he, he encounters those realities and knows them in a different way when he knows them through his senses. So Aquinas' account of these three levels was uh, in Christ's human mind was extremely influential, and for centuries it was nearly universally accepted by Catholic theologians. But uh, now some think that this is incompatible with maybe a full, um, a full appreciation of Jesus' human life. And some would want to say, you know, we really shouldn't say, for example, that Jesus had the beatific vision because then he wouldn't be like us, kind of struggling through in quasi-obscurity to figure out where his life is going. And he kind of discovers that through time, and maybe it becomes more and more clear to him what his own mission is as he sees how he's able to affect people by his preaching or how the Holy Spirit is empowering his ministry. This is the kind of claim that some theologians want to make. And part of what I want to do is to show you why Aquinas doesn't go that way. Why Aquinas thinks actually it's very important for Jesus to have this very high form of human knowledge, and it's precisely for the sake of our salvation. So rather than entering into all the details of Aquinas' account of beatific vision, infused knowledge, experiential knowledge, these three levels in Christ's human soul, what I'd like to do is maybe take a step back and see the wider view that Aquinas has of Christ's supernatural knowledge and what role that plays in his theology as a whole or in his account of human salvation. So my, my point is that Aquinas' arguments for Christ's perfect human supernatural knowledge, so his, his natural knowledge would be like his experiential knowledge. The supernatural knowledge are really the, the top two categories, beatific vision and infused knowledge. Those are, those are something that you don't get just 
by the operation of your natural activity. So Aquinas' arguments for these two higher levels of Christ's human knowledge are set within three larger claims or overarching perspectives. The first is that Jesus is the Savior of the world by way of knowledge. That is, he is the supreme revealer of God. Second, Jesus is the Word incarnate, full of grace and truth, who receives the Holy Spirit in full as man. And third, as an instrument of his divinity, Christ's human nature is perfectly adapted for his saving mission, precisely as a rational creature, as a rational nature. What I'm saying there is that, and we won't talk about this third one very much, but just to uh, explain it slightly more, Jesus, the divine word, or we could say the divine word pre-existing before the incarnation, assumes a human nature to himself. The son assumes a human nature to himself, and that human nature is like an instrument of his divinity through which he acts and by which he saves us. And it's not just an instrument like a like a robot or like a body or like a stick. It's a rational creature. So it's not just a body doing these things. It's a human, a man doing them. So we want to say that Jesus' human actions are really human actions. They're also divine actions, of course. But they are really human actions, and God works through those human acts using the human nature as his instrument. So we want to have a full and rich account of Jesus' humanity as an instrument of his divinity. And that means he has to know and will, know and love as man and also as God. Now, this third perspective about the instrument of, of um, the humanity of Jesus has gotten a lot more attention, so I'm not going to give it as much attention because just because it's, it's more commonly discussed. So let's talk about the first perspective or the first claim. Jesus as the supreme re revealer or our savior by way of knowledge. So we've already seen... I talked about it in my first talk on this retreat, that it's fundamental for Aquinas that the human being is made to know. Our mind is made to know. And above all, our mind is made to know the truth about God. So we saw uh, a quote from Aquinas last time where he says, the whole salvation of man, which is in God, hangs on knowledge of this truth, the truth about God. So Aquinas really does think what you think about God matters. It's a, it's your salvation hangs in the balance. In the Summa Contra Gentiles, St. Thomas makes an audacious claim that knowledge of divine truth is the ultimate end of the universe. He says it's the reason why the word of God who is divine truth in person, came into the world in the incarnation. And that is 
text C on your handout. I've skipped the first two, uh, which are text from um, the patristic age, the Gregory of Nazianzus and the Council of Chalcedon, um, just in the interest of, of time, so we can go straight to Aquinas. So starting with text C. The ultimate end of the universe is the good of the intellect, and this is truth. And hence, for the manifestation of the truth, divine wisdom testifies that having put on flesh, he has come into the world, saying, for this I was born, and for this I came into the world, that I would bear witness to the truth. Now you might say, oh, well, that's kind of surprising because doesn't Aquinas famously teach that the incarnation is a remedy for sin? How does that fit in? Actually, Aquinas unites these two perspectives, that the incarnation is a remedy for sin, with the second perspective, that the incarnation is for the per perfection of the universe. So sometimes these are contrasted as if they were opposites, but in fact, in Aquinas, they're actually, he puts them together. The incarnation is the remedy for the darkness and ignorance that results from sin. And so it aims at the ultimate perfection of the universe after the fall. So yes, the incarnation is a remedy for sin, but it's aiming at the perfection of the universe after the fall. So Aquinas' commentary on uh, John chapter 1, verse 9, uh, the line there in Scripture is, he was the true light which enlightens every man. So when Aquinas comments on this, he spells this out in a very striking way and gives three reasons why the Word became incarnate, and each deals with bringing the human race to a perfect knowledge of God. So the first two of these reasons are especially pertinent to my argument in this talk. And you get this in text D. God willed to become incarnate first because of the perversity of human nature, which because of its own malice had been darkened by vices and the obscurity of its own ignorance. Therefore, God came in the flesh so that the darkness might apprehend the light, that is, obtain a knowledge of it. So in a parallel passage in the Summa, Aquinas explains that the words incarnation is a fitting remedy for the precise sin of our first parents. So this is text E. For the first man sinned by desiring knowledge, as is clear from the words of the serpent, promising man knowledge of good and evil. Thus, it was fitting that through the word of true wisdom, man, who by an inordinate appetite for knowledge, withdrew from God, would be brought back unto God. Do you see the logic there that Aquinas is working with? The sin of our first parents was reaching out for knowledge, but reaching out in a sinful way. And by reaching out for knowledge that disordered them from God, in fact, what resulted was a darkening of their intellect and the the wound of sin. So their intellect is darkened, their affections are disordered, a whole bunch of problems result. But in fact, God wants to heal the human mind's desire for knowledge. And that's what he's doing in the incarnation. 
He's trying to heal the mind. So the word becomes incarnate precisely to bring the light of the divine word word into the mind of human beings, into the mind of man, and to restore the disorder caused by our first parent's sin. So if we go back now to the text we started with a minute ago, Aquinas' commentary on John chapter 1, verse 9, we see Aquinas' second reason for the word's incarnation. And this is your next text, text F. The second reason is that the testimony of the prophets was not enough, for the prophets had come, John the Baptist had come, but they were not able to illuminate sufficiently because, and this is referring to John the Baptist, he was not the light. And so after the prophets and the coming of John, it was necessary that the light itself come and give the world a knowledge of itself. Okay, so now Aquinas is adding a new element to his account. The light of prophecy is not enough to save the world. You need the divine light to come into the world. So Jesus acts for our salvation in a way that surpasses what someone with infused prophetic knowledge could do. Because a prophet speaks of what he hears, but Jesus sees the Father. So a prophet has knowledge of God in a dependent way. Jesus has the full possession of the knowledge of God. He has a kind of dominion over the gifts of prophecy. And that means he can reveal God in a qualitatively different way than a prophet can reveal. Okay, moving on. Aquinas also connects the salvation brought by the incarnation to the word's assumption of a human mind. And we've already kind of talked about this, but this text makes it clear in a very nice way. This is text G from uh, the Summa. The purpose of the incarnation is the justification of man from sin, Aquinas writes. For the human soul is not capable of sin nor of justifying grace except through the mind. Okay, actually, just pause for a moment there and note what Aquinas is saying. Non-rational creatures can't sin. In order to sin, you need to have a mind. And that also includes the possibility of free choice. So that's, that's a, a qualifying uh, condition for committing a sin, is that it be free. So the human soul is capable of sin and also of justifying grace precisely because of its mind. So back to Aquinas' text. Hence, it was especially necessary for the mind to be assumed. And so Damascene says, this is St. John Damascene, who Aquinas often quotes, that the word of God assumed a body and an intellectual and rational soul and afterwards adds, the whole was united to the whole that he might bestow salvation on me wholly for what was not assumed is not curable. So Aquinas is quoting John Damascene, who is like the last of the Greek fathers in a certain way. He's a a liminal figure who kind of transmits much of the wisdom of the Greek church fathers to the Latin West. So Aquinas was reading John Damascene. But in fact, 
John Damascene is paraphrasing here Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the great church fathers. So really we're getting uh, the, the wisdom from the church fathers who were dealing with the Apollinarian heresy, which had to do with denying that Jesus had a human mind. And the principle is that the wound of sin primarily affects man's mind, and therefore the remedy of grace is likewise applied through the mind. Grace comes to you from above, and it touches you at the highest point of your humanity, which is the highest part of your mind. And incidentally, this is why sometimes your mind can be healed, but things lower, like your bodily appetites, can remain kind of unsettled. And it may take a while for that healing to really fully reorder what is below. And in fact, for us fallen human beings, it never fully fixes the problems with our passions in this life. So we continue to have some disorder in the lower parts of us. So Aquinas continues, the intellect of mind, the intellect or mind of man is, as it were, a light lit up by the divine word. And hence, the mind of man is perfected by the presence of the word. So in the Summa, Aquinas is very explicit that in order to accomplish the work of salvation, the human mind of Jesus needs to be perfect in supernatural knowledge, and especially it needs the beatific vision. Now, these, these Summa texts in Aquinas are often read as if St. Thomas were primarily motivated by just a kind of pure uh, desire that Jesus be perfect in every way. Sometimes people label this the principle of perfection. You know, it's basically, they say, well, why did Aquinas say Jesus had the beatific vision? Well, just because Aquinas wanted Jesus to be perfect in everything. And so he's just going to say, well, he's perfect in everything. And, uh, you know, but actually, do we really need to say that? That's, that's what the modern theologian will ask. Do we really need to say Jesus is perfect in every way? Why does he need to be perfect in every way? Maybe it's actually better if he's uh, imperfect in some ways, and then he'd be more like us. That's the way the argument goes. But you see, it's uh, something much bigger is at stake for Aquinas. It's not just that he wants Jesus to be perfect in every way. Uh, I don't know if you uh, would remember this song. Um, uh, let's see, how does it go? I, I don't really like the song. I don't, I don't uh, endorse the song. Um, but the song is illustrative of this kind of principle of perfection way of thinking. I think it's called, uh, like, Jesus is way cool, something like that. Do you remember this? It was from like the 1990s. It was a popular group. I wish I could remember uh, now exactly how it goes. But I mean, it's like it says things like Jesus could play the guitar better than Jimi Hendrix. Man, that is so cool. <laughs> and then it would go on and like talk about all these all these things, which are actually very modest claims, like playing the guitar better than Jimi Hendrix. OK, that's yeah, that's cool. But, like, <laughs> Jesus is God, okay? That's much cooler. <laughs> he can raise the dead. It's much cooler than playing the guitar. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's kind of uh, 
it maybe borders on blasphemy to begin just treating Jesus like the coolest celebrity. He's not, he's not the coolest celebrity. It, like we're talking about a different category of thing here. We're talking about our Lord and Savior, someone who we love and worship, not, um, not just a cool guy. Uh, and, you know, so I, I don't really like the, you can sometimes find the holy card that shows the picture of Jesus, like looking like a cool guy, like, you know, laughing and it's, it, it can seem, it's not that we want to say that Jesus didn't, you know, didn't smile or didn't laugh, but it can make him seem too, um, too merely human. And we don't want, we want Jesus to be fully human, but we don't want to say that he's merely human, which is why the, the traditional um, iconogra- iconography of Jesus shows him as someone who we, we can also worship. Okay, so it's not just that Jesus is way cool, but Aquinas thinks that Christ needs that supreme knowledge in order to reveal God to us, and that, in fact, this is the only way to interpret Holy Scripture, Aquinas thinks. So Christ's mind needs to be perfectly full of the knowledge of God because we are saved as we come to know God, and after the fall, it was necessary to bring that full revelation of the knowledge of God to man's mind through the word who comes in person. Or to put this another way, I'm kind, I feel like I'm kind of uh, repeating myself, but another way to put this is Jesus is in no way the beneficiary of revelation. He's the agent of revelation and of salvation. Okay, so you can see this if you read some other texts in Aquinas' work. So Aquinas, I think, really does very much believe this. So from the Compendium of Theology, Aquinas writes this, the human nature assumed by the word of God ought not to have been lacking in any perfection whatever, since through it the whole of human nature was to be restored. So you get a kind of expression of the principle of perfection there, that Jesus needs to be the best. But it's not just because we want to say he's the best, but because it's ordered to salvation. So Aquinas uses a provocative analogy. And this is text H. So his argument is that among creatures... The man, Jesus, is like a first mover of salvation by way of knowledge. So look at Aquinas' text. In every genus, that which is the first mover is not moved by the same species of motion. Now, Christ is established as the head of the church and indeed of all men, so that all men would not only receive grace through him, but also so that all would receive from him the doctrine of truth. Hence, he himself says, for this I was born and for this I came into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. So since Jesus is the first teacher, the highest teacher of divine truth, 
He cannot be moved to this knowledge in the same way as other creatures. He needs a uniquely full creaturely knowledge of God, a created knowledge of God, in order to be the supreme agent of divine revelation and hence of salvation for all creatures, including, by the way, angels as well as human beings. And that's how Aquinas reads John chapter 6, verse 46, which goes, No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. That is, you and I hear of the Father from the Son, but Jesus sees him. Now, this also means that Jesus is the manifestation of the Father's secret inner word. And this is one of my favorite texts. It's text I from Aquinas' John commentary. He says, someone manifests his secrets through his word. And hence, no one can come to a man's secrets except through that man's word. So, I mean, I don't know what you're thinking unless you tell me. That's basically the, the point. So your inner thoughts, I cannot know unless you speak them. Because, therefore, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God, no one can come to know the Father except through his word, which is his Son. No one knows the Father except the Son. Just as a man wanting to reveal himself by the word of his heart that he proffers by his mouth, clothes that word, as it were, with letters or sounds, so also God, wanting to manifest himself to, man, to men, clothes his word conceived from all eternity with flesh in time. And thus no one can come to a knowledge of the Father except through the Son. So according to St. Thomas, the humanity of Christ is related to the Father's word like a spoken word is related to the thought that it expresses. So our vocal sounds bear within them the meaning of the interior word, which you conceive in your heart or in your mind. And by those spoken words, you reveal that interior word to others. So also the humanity of Christ is the manifestation in time of the word himself, the Father's word. And so also it makes known the Father who speaks the word. So even this is not a perfect analogy, Aquinas thinks, because a spoken word is not perfectly identical to the word you conceive in your mind or in your heart. But the incarnate word is the same as the eternal word. So the man Jesus is the Father's word in the flesh. He assumes this flesh precisely to embody in this world the inner truth from the Father. So for Aquinas, the revelation that Jesus brings is very different from that of a Gnostic teacher. So the Gnostics were uh, an, another ancient non-Christian sect who made a big deal about being saved by knowledge 
And sometimes people think, oh, the Gospel of John, by talking so much about being saved by knowledge, is like a Gnostic text. But there's very radical differences between them. Jesus is not like a Gnostic teacher who communicates divine secrets through his spoken teaching. Aquinas' point is that the word has become flesh, and so and also the saving revelation wrought by Christ is accomplished in all of Jesus' actions and sufferings. And this is built on the supernatural knowledge of Jesus. So Jesus is the is the word of God in person, in the flesh. And so everything about his life and his, his very humanity itself is revelatory and salvific. It's not just the words that Jesus speaks that are saving. It's everything about him. And this is especially true regarding Jesus' passion and death. So there we find the highest manifestation of God's love for us, the highest teaching of wisdom, and also the deeply mysterious revelation of how God responds to evil and suffering. His answer is the cross. So Aquinas would hold that it's very important, actually, that Jesus have the beatific vision as he suffers on the cross so that he would know every sinner and every sin so as to take the weight of every sin upon himself. And he knows the terrible burden of sin perfectly precisely because he has the beatific vision. So he knows perfectly who God is and therefore what sinners are losing by their sin when they forsake God. So Aquinas' claim is that Jesus doesn't just know, like, humanity in general on the cross. He's not just dying on the cross for humanity in general. In the beatific vision, he knows everything about the world in concrete, in, in its particulars, which means he knows you and your sins. And he assumes the weight of them individually. And in fact, he would do it all just for you. That's kind of staggering. But he really is dying not just for you generically. He's dying for you in person, personally, in particular. Because he knows in that beatific vision just how great God is much, much more clearly than we could possibly know. We don't really understand. And therefore, he also knows how terrible our sins are. Not just terrible in terms of how they offend God, but how terrible they are for us. Like what the sinner often doesn't realize is what he's losing. We become numb to the truth about what we're giving up. Jesus sees that clearly, and so that's, that's painful for him. It's painful for him spiritually, you might say, 
to have someone that he loves as much as he loves you and to see the way you and I are ruining ourselves by our sins. So he takes that suffering of our loss in a way he appreciates, he feels our sins, spiritually speaking, more than we can feel them. And it's precisely because of the beatific vision that he's able to do that. Okay, so to sum up, the word's incarnation is the heart of the entire economy of salvation because it's through the word and through his manifestation of the Father to us that we're brought back to the Father. And that requires that Jesus as man have the fullest knowledge of God possible to a creature. So now I want to talk for a minute about Aquinas' second major argument for Christ's supreme supernatural knowledge. And I'm just going to talk about this briefly and then draw this to a close. Aquinas says, Jesus receives the Holy Spirit in full as man. And this is important for appreciating the spiritual uh, truths taught in Scripture. For example, John's prologue says that he is full of grace and truth. And also we read that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted. And Jesus breathes forth the Spirit on his apostles after the resurrection. So Aquinas' reflections on this point help us appreciate the real Trinitarian riches that you find in the gospel. That Jesus has the supernatural knowledge. Yes, he has it as the divine word, but also he has it as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. So he receives as man the Holy Spirit in full, even though as God, the Son is a principle of the Holy Spirit. And this actually emerges from Aquinas' synthesis of the Church Fathers, which is that uh, Christ is one person with two distinct natures. So maybe we don't need to uh, go into that in great detail. I've given you a couple texts, text J, text K, that talk about, uh, talk about this, the distinction of natures in one person. But let me just uh, um, move to another quote, which is not on your handout, where Aquinas says, Jesus receives the whole spirit, the Holy Spirit in his entirety. So this is the quote from Aquinas. God gives the spirit to men by measure, but to the son without measure. He gives the whole spirit to the incarnate son, not in a particular fashion, not by subdivision, but universally and generally. So according to Aquinas, if Christ has the spirit in full and without measure, then the mind of Jesus must be filled with the highest supernatural knowledge possible to a human intellect. And that includes not only prophetic knowledge, supernatural infused knowledge, but also the beatific vision. So Aquinas says, 
Because Christ has the Spirit without measure, it belongs to him to know all things in the word. And then this is linked to what Aquinas calls the capital grace of Christ. The capital grace of Christ means that he is the head. So caput in, in English, I mean in Latin, uh, is you know reference to the head. So the capital grace of Christ means his grace as the head of the body, which is the church. So Jesus is the head. Think of the human body like all of the powers are in a way derived to the body from the head. Your mind governs the rest of the body. The body shares in a certain way in, your, in the knowledge of the head. Uh, so analogously, Jesus is the head of the church, and it's through the head that all of the members receive the spirit, which passes through the humanity of Christ, like through a fountainhead. So Aquinas writes, because he received the gifts of the Spirit without measure, Christ has the power of pouring them out without measure. So then Jesus, having received as man the Spirit in full, gives the Holy Spirit to the world, and it's by that Spirit that we that we are made knowers of the word and therefore adopted sons and daughters of the Father. So I hope it's now clear that Christ's human knowledge is not just a footnote in Aquinas' account of Jesus. It's actually a very central idea, and it has to do with how we are saved. Sin affects our mind, grace also needs to affect our mind. And it's that process of healing is begun in the human nature of Jesus, in the human mind of Jesus. So that Jesus can say, I know the Father, for I come from him and he sent me. Thank you. Yeah. I have a comment and then a question regarding uh, Christ's mind and having the gift of tradition and why so many modern theologians want to deny that. Um, my comment is it's really important to keep the distinction between Christ's mind that has the beatific vision and the mind of the Word, the second person of the Trinity. They're, it's different. The beatific vision is knowing God immediately with no intermediaries, like we will with the beatific vision. But the mind of the Son, the person of the Trinity, is a comprehensive knowledge of God. So there's a huge gap difference between them. And I think a lot of modern theologians forget that. Um, my question is, the principle, what is not assumed is not redeemed, right? Can you use that argument to say, if Christ didn't assume our capacity for the beatific vision, then we would not be redeemed to experience it ourselves? Or is that not work? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that does work. I think Aquinas would say something like that. He wants to say that the humanity of Jesus is first. So the, all of the benefits that come to mirror human beings 
pass through the humanity of Christ or are in a way given to Christ first so that he is the exemplar of our of what it means to be a saved you know a fully divinized humanity a fully divinized humanity is above all the humanity of Jesus so i mean this is to use very exalted and maybe kind of abstract language to make a very straightforward point which is like we're saved as we're configured to Jesus so the life of Jesus is the the template for salvation we need to be configured to him and that means like it's very this is how like we begin to see the the riches of this view that um everything that Jesus did and suffered is a revelation to us and is teaching us how we need to live. And we're supposed to be configured to that in some way. So there is no Christian salvation that doesn't follow Jesus on the way of the cross. That's mysterious for us because we don't understand why if God is going to become man, he is going to need to suffer. Like, doesn't that seem like crazy? He couldn't, he could have not done that somehow. And yet, that's how he chose to do it. And it, so it's teaching us something about how much he loves us and also about how to solve the problem of evil, which, you know, we were talking about around the fire last night. It's a, it's a very difficult problem for us to get our minds around. Like, why doesn't God just like, snap his fingers, metaphorically speaking, right? And say the pandemic is over or cancer is cured or there won't be any more death or more dramatically, you won't sin ever again. You know, wouldn't you like that? Uh, well, why doesn't, why doesn't God just do that? Well, he's teaching us something. I mean, I, it's hard for us to answer that question. I don't, I don't really fully understand the plan. But I have to trust that God knows what he's doing. And when God wanted to reveal the plan most fully to us, how did he do it? He assumed our human nature completely without sin. No need for Jesus to suffer in one sense. And yet he very willingly took on the suffering that is due to sinners and endured it, you know, unto death, so that he could come out the other side, having conquered death. But our path to eternal life passes through the cross. And that's also remains mysterious to us, because we want to say, hey, come on, God, you could like dispense us from this. Why don't you just dispense us? You know, um, I, I say that as a, as a religious who has a superior, and I can go to my superior and be like, you know, I know I'm supposed to do this thing, but can't you just give me permission to not do it? Like, can't you just dispense me from that obligation? And, uh, and it, you know, like, actually, the answer is you're not dispensed from the cross. You know, we have to pass through it. So this is, and, and there must be a good reason for that. It's not just, so th this is where we have to, we have to plumb the riches of God's revelation and realize that there, there's a whole pedagogy. God is trying to teach us something very profound, which our minds have a very hard time grasping, apparently. Like we're very thick-headed 
It's exactly what we will hear in the gospel today, where Jesus, after the resurrection, appears to the disciples and he opens their minds to understand why it was that the Christ had to suffer. Like, we, don't, we, we still don't get that. Um, but in a certain way, you know, Jesus appearing on the road to Emmaus, and then the gospel that we hear today is the next little episode. He appears to the disciples in the upper room. And both times he explains why it was necessary. You know, how it's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Everything that the, that the law, that Moses and the prophets and the Psalms said about me, basically, that, that I was going to suffer and therefore bring about the repentance of sin, you know, for the salvation. Okay, that's, that's deeply mysterious. We don't, we don't understand that. But that's like, as, as um, now Archbishop Augustine de Noya says, it's like the first Christology seminar, you know. Jesus has this little group of students, and he's like, hey, guys, you didn't get it. Like, I've been teaching you for three years, and you didn't get the lesson. Here, let me explain it to you again. So this is like somehow we have to be configured to Jesus in everything that he does in order to solve the problems. And uh, that's like we don't like that on a certain level, you know, but uh, that is the that is the way to salvation. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of kind of what you said at the earlier, earlier remarks about Christ leading us to friendship with him. Um, and I remember very struggling with, with this uh, philosophical knowledge of God, I felt, and then how that can relate to, um, I think, Rex and I probably like this biblical belief in God. And so so I think there's, there's a tendency for, for us to, to want to cultivate this kind of cognitive knowledge of God, and that's our way to salvation. And then what, what Rex did, I think it was in the introduction to Christianity, um, he pairs that with how belief developed uh, historically through Israel, through the Old Testament, um, which took a very long time. And so I'm just, I'm just wondering if you could comment on something on, on that as to a biblical belief as, I don't know, maybe that, there's more of that relational kind of uh, aspect in there. But I I'm not sure I entirely understand what you're, uh, the, yeah. what the question is. Yeah, so um, it's like we, we can have, have a good cognitive knowledge of God philosophically, but is there is there that difference in when we come to know somebody uh, as, as a friend? You know, um, is one is, is that first kind of a means? To yeah. Or is, there, is the other? Right. Thing? You know, so I'm, I'm kind of confused on, on yeah. that. Well, so this might go back to, I mean, we might profitably go back to that text from Aquinas where he talks about the interior word, you know. So why is Aquinas talking about that? Well, he's commenting on John's gospel, so it comes up in John's gospel. But um, what what St. Thomas is trying to point out is that it's one thing to know facts about somebody that are like exterior facts. I was talking with uh, one of you about, you know, like our knowledge of, um, you know, movie star. Uh so you could you could say okay um, you know I don't know pick a pick a movie star who's somebody name a movie star Angelina Jolie okay so Angelina Jolie you know like you can know a lot of facts about Angelina Jolie 
Uh, you probably could find out a lot on the internet, like where she went to high school, what her favorite ice cream is, you know, stuff like that. Um, and you might even be able to like find out where she lives and you could like camp out in front of her house and you could follow her around and try and bring her her favorite ice cream and eventually you're gonna get arrested. Um, uh, because that's creepy, right? You don't, you don't actually know her. You're not her friend. Um, she doesn't know you and you don't have a living relationship, but you know a lot about her. Um, and uh, so it's different. Like you can know a lot about somebody, you can know a lot of facts and still not know them or have a relationship with them. And to have a relationship requires actually some revelation of what's interior. And that's what Aquinas is getting at about no one knows someone's interior life unless that person reveals himself or herself, opens himself or herself up. And, and we do that through speech, especially. I mean, other things too. And also, so that's what God is doing in the incarnation of the word. He's taking what is most interior to him, the word of his heart. So the father's very word of his heart. And he's making it communicable to us through the humanity of Jesus. So it's not just the words that Jesus says. It's everything about his life. So it's like the, the very embodiment of the, the secret truth of the father is now made ours. So it's not, in a way, secret anymore. It's now known by us, and it's precisely to bring us into that, that real interior living relationship with the Father. Does that, is that addressing the, the issue? Yeah, I think what, what you said helps. helps. I, I'm thinking of, I see a lot of uh, commentary on, or not commentary, people in the parish always say, like, why do you have to study so much? I think what, what Aquinas is getting at is something like a richer, fuller knowledge that we might want to separate knowledge from the love that, that we recite in the narrative and respect of the total, total Christ isn't just mere facts, but it really does include the whole, whole of that. Yeah, and I mean, if there's somebody who you really love, you want to spend more time with them. You want to know them better. And so, like, God's word is living, right? It's alive. And, and we encounter him in the word. So like when you're studying theology, that's what you're doing. You're studying, you're studying sacred scripture. Now, maybe with a lot of extra, you know, philosophical categories and stuff is that's needed to under, to unpack the richness of that word. But in the end, we're not doing something. We're not just like studying the history of doctrines. That's called religious studies. And you know, Thomists like don't really want to go that road. Um, like you can do that. It's part of history, but we're interested in studying the word of God as the word of God, which is as a divine revelation, as the source of salvation. So it's, it is like, that's why for Aquinas, like study becomes the activity of a lover who's contemplating the face of the beloved. Yeah. Like that fullness needs to be in his human nature or his human mind, but since it's human, isn't that finite? 
Yeah. Awesome question. And uh, Aquinas actually very explicitly takes this up both in the Summa and in the commentary on the Gospel of John, where he says, okay, um, what does it mean to have the fullness of the Holy Spirit if you're a finite creature? And he says, Jesus has that fullness differently than any other creature because it's both uh, intensively full. So this is technical, you know, scholastic terminology, intensively full and extensively full, meaning intensively full. He has everything that a human nature can possibly receive. He, he has. So every way that a human, human being can receive the spirit, uh, Jesus has. And it's extensively full in the sense that he has all of the gifts of the spirit and he, he pours them out on, on the world. So um, St. Thomas uses an analogy when he's talking about the, so it is finite. Yes, in a certain sense, it's finite. No creature can receive the infinite God as God exists in himself and have like, so there's, there's always going to be some interplay there between the infinity of God and the finitude of the recipient classic scholastic axiom, which you should definitely memorize in Latin and impress your friends with. Um, it's great to throw it out there. Quid quid recipitur, recipitur in modo recipientis. Um, whatever is received is received in the mode of the receiver. It sounds like, sounds kind of dumb, but when you, when you unpack it, it means that like, you can have something really great, but it's always going to be received just according to the capacity of the one you're giving it to. Like, uh, so, Aquinas uses that principle when he's talking about this. He says, okay, imagine, this is Aquinas' own analogy. Imagine you're um, going to a river to get water and you have a bucket. Um, you can say you have filled the bucket from the river when the bucket is totally full. It can't hold any more water. Uh, but obviously, the river is much a much greater source than the bucket. Um, but in fact, in a certain sense, what is happening in the humanity of Christ is that the very source of the river is given to the humanity of Christ so that it's, it's not just that he has like a, a, a certain quantity of water. He has within him the divine source of the water. So obviously he has it in a limited human way. But he can pour it out. And so it's in some way, um, he becomes the fountainhead for the infinite source flowing, flowing through him. Yeah, I think that there's something like that. Yeah. I mean, we're probably going to, we're the, the material analogies, you know, to use material analogies is always going to fail on some level. So, um, what we want to say is that the humanity of Christ, so there's something that I, a distinction that I did not make when in the main part of the talk, but maybe I should throw it out here. Um, there's kind of two, two principal ways that the humanity of Jesus uh, is full of grace or is graced, we could say. Um, one is called the grace of union, and that is also talked about as the hypostatic union. Maybe you've heard that technical term in theology. That means that this man is God. He is 
God. So it's a, it's a union, it's ontological, or it's according to being. So there's the union of natures in the person of Christ. That's what we're designated by the grace of union. And this human nature, the human nature of Jesus, there was nothing in that human nature. It didn't pre-exist before the incarnation. And there was nothing in the human side of that that deserves being God. So it's a grace that this man is God, looked at from the human side of things. Okay, so that's to speak about the hypostatic union. I realize there are other, other questions here. Um, then there's the, a second category of grace in Christ, and that's called his habitual grace. This is his fullness of the Holy Spirit. So now, uh, the, the hypostatic union, that belongs only to Jesus. There's no other example of it in the history of the world. It's absolutely unique, and it means that Jesus is completely different in the order of salvation than all the rest of us because he is God by be with respect to his being or his subsistence. Okay, but his humanity is also elevated in a human way by habitual grace, and that is like the, the way we are elevated and sanctified by grace. So this is the habitual grace or sanctifying grace of Christ, and it's according to that that he receives the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Um, let's give our thanks to Father Dominic.